Moments ago, you saw that the title of this particular sermon as we take it up was simply this, Give Glory to God. That's one of those things uh, when we talk about those pillars of the Reformation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, through, that we hear of in Scripture alone, but all of it culminates in to the glory of God alone. And we understand, the more we understand that, our, that our commitment is to glorify him, his commitment is to bring himself glory, we understand here is a passage where this did not happen. And when it did not happen in this passage, the result was death. Not eventual death, but significant and serious death that day. I subtitled this the hubris of Herod. Now I know that some of you do not use the word hubris in your ordinary conversation. And you think it might be a sponge you use in the shower. That is not the meaning of the word hubris. Hubris is this simple definition. It is excessive pride or self-confidence arrogance. And that is what Herod embodied and what's what's sometimes dangerous is we we can turn this moment into a situation where we look and say tisk 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 herod that guy wicked and then maybe quickly we can also think i know a few herods you know yeah let me tell you about them i know some guys who make herod look humble maybe you might say but again, the design of this is not so that we can so quickly pass judgment on our fellow man. They will someday stand before God. Let us take what we hear today and first and foremost ask God that it might humble us. Because I will tell you this. We all fall short of the glory of God. We all fall short of ascribing to God the glory do his name. And so when we take this up, I don't want us to misunderstand these things. And so the first thing I want us to take up here as we begin to look at this uh, prideful pattern of Herod, I guess initially I should clarify a couple thoughts for you. For those of you more inclined to the historic element Within this passage, I know some of you are like, I, I care less. Just tell me what I'm supposed to learn. Nonetheless, God has been pleased to put these things into history. And this particular Herod is just one in a long line of Herods that lacked humility. <laughs> you know, in the days of Christ, there was, uh, in his, the days of his birth, there was Herod the Great, who is this Herod's grandfather. And that Herod, we know, when he had heard that Jesus was born and that uh, the Magi did not come back and report, he's the one who ordered for the death of all those two and under that would be there. Then later, during the, the period of Jesus's ministry, and even the time where he was ultimately handed over, it was not this particular Herod, who is Herod uh, Herod Agrippa it was this one was Herod the Tetrarch Herod Antipas and so this is yet another one 
So there's a long line of Herods, and one of the things that seemed to characterize the Herodian line, and maybe some might think it was unique to those men in leadership, they had a great deal of self-importance. You know. Thankfully, we don't see people like that today, do we? Ah. But what I want us to see, and we're going to see just a few little pieces about him and, and unpack those things. And, and, and I hope that as we do, uh, a, a few thoughts that I want to share come a little bit clearer. When we talk about Herod's pride, I want to give you a few warnings out of Proverbs before we dig into some of his specifics. Okay, It says this in Proverbs 16. They're all going to be just a few verses from Proverbs 16. Verse 3. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. Ooh, that's really clear and really strong, isn't it? And we take those things pretty lightly. Uh, another verse that we often smash together and has become a com common saying, pride comes before a fall actually says in Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. So get this, it does not ultimately lead to just a fall. It leads to utter and ultimate doom and destruction. And so these are not things that we want to take lightly. So let's, let's take this up and let's see what Herod, how Herod manifests his pride. First of all, and we're going to kind of encapsulate a few things from throughout the chapter. He was a man who was mean-spirited. Okay? A man that the scripture says here is a man of violent hands. And I know, and, and this is the hesitancy. The moment I say this, our minds are starting to list people we know that are mean-spirited. You know, you'll have plenty of time for that later. Let's you know, let, let's realize the odd occasions, you know, the rare blue moon occasions where we ourselves are also. And I'm being generous there. Mean-spirited. It says of him, this of Herod, in verse 2 or verse 1. At that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. I always want to remind us of this because when we come to this passage, we often focus on the death or killing of James and the imprisonment of Peter. That's not all this man was doing. He was coming after all the Christians. He was, and his hand against them, it says, laid violent hands on them. That's a wonderfully picturesque way of saying he was doing something more than patting them on the back right what he was doing was bringing them under under great pain under great difficulty under great agony and then with james it escalates to not just violence but murder and one of the things that we do learn along the way in our own experience and in in our observations of the world is sin begets sin. You ever notice that? People like to think, you know what? I'm just going to little bitty bitty compromise. You know, I, I know that this isn't pleasing to God. But I didn't really 
bad and wrong, is it? So let me, let me put my foot over the line. Didn't get run over. Let me step all the way over. Let me do it again a little more, a little longer. And pretty soon, what happens? You built a little shack on the other side of the line. And that's where you're camping out. Because sin begets sin, and one gets another, and they're all so interwoven. He started out a little violence. Hmm, getting a good response from some of my people around me. Let me increase that. Getting a good response. People are loving it. Let me take one of their big boys, one of their apostles, and kill him. The people loved it. And so he just went from bad to worse to worse. Now listen to this. He, the, the scripture also, as we come down now to the section where we're in today, it says this in verse 20. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came in one accord and persuaded to, to, to have a talk with him. So Herod was angry with them. Why? I do not know. Was it justified? I do not know. What I do know is he was angry with them. Now, the King James there uh, went a little gentle here, simply says, he was highly displeased. He, this word here is not highly displeased. The, the word that is used here carries this sense. Enraged, very angry, exasperated, furious. You know, highly displeased. It's like, hmm. But this is no, this is more like, I'm going to get you. When I get the opportunity, you are going down. Right. You know, and maybe I'm, I'm playing it too strong. Let me relax a moment here. The, but it, it is strong language. Now, do you ever get angry? Yes, you do. When you get angry, how do you then respond to that? Do you respond with violent hands? I think some of us can recall a time that maybe we did so. And that's true. Uh, uh, some are responding in a clear way that sometimes, uh, you know what's sharper than, a, than, a, than an open hand across the face? The sword and fire of the tongue. And we lash out in those ways. And the scripture does remind us in Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 26 and 27. These blessed. And I would love to say simple. And they are simple to understand. But difficult to live out words. Be angry. And do not sin. Further it then says. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So we're going to be wronged on occasion. We're going to see people wronging even the name of our God. Misrepresenting the gospel. And that's, that is going to stir us up. Right? There is a righteous indignation that can be there. And the scripture here does not condemn all anger and all expressions of indignation. And most of the time, 
we haven't even worked through it in that way. All right, this person just said something to me that was mean. Am I going to decide to be angry or am I going to just let it go? Let me see. Do, is that how it usually works? No, no, no. Anger is not a decision we've made. It wells up from some strangely burning place within. And even oftentimes as it's welling up, we're like, no, no, no. I'm not, I'm not going to be angry about this. I'm not going to be angry about this. But we still are. And we're trying to tone it down and we're trying to suppress it. But we still feel it. You know, it's not just me, right? Please, okay. But though we're angry, do not sin and do not let the sun go down on your anger. That sense is what? Don't hold it. Don't carry it. Oftentimes you need to go to that person and get these things sorted out. Sometimes you just forgive and you roll it over to the Lord. And say, God, I know that you saw. I know that you heard. I know that everyone's going to stand before you and give an answer to every careless word that is uttered. You know, if there is any truth to what they said about me, go ahead and reveal that to me that I might make the changes necessary. But Lord, if not, help me to just move on and let it go. Are there, is there anyone here who has trouble letting things go? Have you ever at some point even found that you've been in a relationship and at some point you've come and said, look, sorry about that. Well, I don't think you really are. Oh, man. But I am sorry about that. I'm sorry that it hurt you. I'm sorry that it upset you. Okay, I forgive you. And once that forgiveness is expressed, you never hear about it again, right? The next time there's an argument or an issue or a failing, they don't say, you did it again. Just like, remember a year ago? Does that ever happen? Yeah, I'm pretending when I say a year ago, right? We know it's often more frequent than that. And I think there's this ability that we have to hold. And the word here that is used in verse 20 of Herod, where it says Herod was angry. It is in the present active. The sense of the present act. Active in the Greek is not, is, is not the sense of he was angry for a moment. He was angry and he kept on being angry and he kept on being angry. That, this was a guy that when you crossed him, he held it. Now, that is not consistent with what we are called to be as God's people. Not only are we to be angry and not sin, we're to forgive one another. We're to have compassion on one another. I often remind us of this. Sometimes a person has acted or said something to us in some way, and we are just so upset about it and hurt. And I can, I can identify with that. But sometimes if it's possible for us to step out of ego for a moment... And think, okay, they don't say these things to me all the time. They might be hurting, going through something else that I don't know. Struggling in some way. Instead of me just harboring anger, increasing to bitterness, overflowing to malice towards them. How about if I pray for them? 
what if I pray for those who persecute me? Because they've wronged me, but maybe it's because they're in a season of misery. The scriptures often talk about times of trial in the phrase of being pressed together and compressed. Now, maybe they are pressed together with some struggle in their lives, in their family, an illness of a loved one, uh, 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 wickedness where the, where the enemy seems to be, to be leading loved ones in ways that are not honoring to God. And, and it's just messed us up. And so we're short in other ways. What's, what's the point in me bearing anger towards that person? How does it benefit them? How does it benefit me? Man, our goal should be to encourage one another, to love one another, and to edify one another. Now, if you need to, you can go to that person lovingly and say, just want to tell you what you said. It really hurt. You know? Is there anything that I can do differently? Is there anything else also going on in your life that I can pray for? I want to be a person who encourages you towards love and good works. And not offends you. And not hurts you. That's not who Herod was. If Herod offended some people. He was okay. Especially if his offending some. Pleased others. Oh they like how I'm treating them. I'm going to do it all the more. Scripture tells us. For our own selves. Still unpacking Ephesians 4 verse 31. Let all bitterness. And wrath. Anger and clamor and slander. Be put away from you. All right. It's it. Now you put something away from you. Because where is it? It's on you. It's in you. And, and what you got to do is you got to put it away from you. This is calling for a deliberate intentional act. It's not just the game. You know the world plays this game. Well time will make it better. Time will, time will make it, it'll subside in time. Not always. You know, generally speaking, it, it's better to put out a forest fire when it's limited to 10 square feet than it is to wait until it's spread over miles and miles. Wouldn't you say? Yeah. It's not a matter of always Time will make it better. And I, I don't sometimes like the fact that we attribute to time things that we ought to always be dependent on the Lord. The Lord can make it better. God grant me forgiveness. God grant me patience. Grant me to be aware of the times when I have done the same such thing to other people. Right? In Colossians chapter 3. Oh, oh, no, I must, don't want to finish Ephesians yet. 4 verse 32. Uh, not only put all those things aside, it says, be kind to one another. So they were mean to you, and your response then is kindness. Be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. They don't deserve it. Well, it says forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And I say this with love. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. 
man does not deserve it, right? But God in Christ forgave us. So let's stop saying, well, when they do this, and when they do that, then I will forgive. When they humbly come, when they admit, when... Come on! When we were dead in our trespasses and sin, He made us alive in Christ. We, it's not when we left our sin, got ourselves cleaned up, and proved ourselves worthy, is it? No, while we were in our sin, he had mercy on us, expressed his love towards us, and forgave us at his own cost. Right? But if I forgive them, they might just do it again. Now, thankfully, the sins God forgave you of before you were saved... You've never done any of them again. Right? Uh, no, absolutely not. I've done many of them again. And some of them too frequently. Agreed? And so we see this, and Colossians reminds us of these words uh, concerning those things. In Colossians 3, 7 through 9, In these you once too walked. You walked in bitterness, and you walked in malice, and you walked in anger. All of us did that. But it says, when you were living in them, But now, verses, you must put them all away. Wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Done with it. And then Hebrews 12 reminds us of this, verse 14, simple verse. Strive for peace with everyone. Oh, everyone? Even him? Yet strive. Now, note this. It says, strive for peace with everyone. You know, people say it, it takes two to tango. It, it takes two to have peace. Your effort is to strive for. M might they uh, love you back? Maybe not. Might they agree to be at peace? No. Might they agree to forgive you when you gave a little kick? They might not. All right, this is not saying necessarily that everything's going to work out and everyone's going to just love you if you do what's right. Does it say that? We wish that's what it said. It says you strive for peace, but it ain't working. If it ain't working, what do you do? Keep striving. But it's wearisome. Yeah, just keep striving. It's okay. Well, how am I going to find the strength to keep striving to try to be at peace? Yeah. Remember, who continues to have mercies on you that are new every morning? You know, every single day. I mean, how many of you reach the end of the day and say, today I was worthy? <laughs> I, I hope not. Because it, it, really what you should say is, today I was blind and senseless. Because you are not worthy. We may fool ourselves and we may overlook and we may justify some of our missteps. 
but we ought not do that. Strive for peace. And the scripture says this, and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. These aren't small things, things we commit to. Now, not only was he mean-spirited, and, and I, uh, you know, and I fear that because we're all sinners, from time to time, from season to season, we can all have a little bit of a mean streak, right? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, you know. I just figure everyone who has hands has a... Secondly, not only mean-spirited, but loves the praise of men. Oh, look what it says in verse 3. He saw that it pleased the Jews. And so he proceeded to arrest Peter. He loved the praise of men. Which is quite interesting. Some men and women we can be mean to because of our own arrogance and pride. But in the midst of that, we still generally like people to think we're great. Like people to think highly of us, you know. If they only thought as highly of us as we think of ourselves, God help us. Because we ought not be thinking so highly of ourselves. You can see this. Listen to the words of Paul in Galatians chapter 1 verse 10. We, what happens is if pleasing men becomes something that drives you and motivates you, it leads to all kinds of compromises. If, if getting and gaining the acceptance of men is what, is what drives you, it will lead you to do things to seemingly identify with their more wicked elements, their more significant compromises. Talking with someone this week, some, someone wanting to fit in who maybe uh, doesn't use a lot of bad language in their normal life, come to a group of people who it's kind of commonplace. In order to fit in, they start mixing in those things. I remember years ago reading about a particular man who I will mention to you by name should you come and ask me afterwards, but I won't say it now, who had somehow became famous as the cussing preacher. And, and, you know, and, 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 and the, whole, the whole point is, man, people, most of the world who, who, who hears me, they cuss. And so they can identify with me. It doesn't matter if they identify with you. you what you're trying to do is set before them the glory of Christ, the excellency of Christ, the hope that is in Christ, the deliverance that's in Christ. It doesn't matter if you identify with them or not. Actually, if you're no longer... A slave to sin. If you're no longer dead in your trespasses. Why are you trying to identify so hard with those who are? How about if we try to identify more with Christ. And those things pleasing in his sight. Than with them. Well if I don't identify that. I don't know. Look the gospel is foolishness. To this world. Until the spirit of God comes. And by his grace causes that very gospel that comes as foolishness to, of men to be the wisdom of God. And we know it. Galatians chapter 1 verse 10. Paul says these words. Am I now seeking the approval of men? Or God? Am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men. I would not be a servant 
of Christ. Remember when the apostles were arrested and told, no longer speak in the name. You said, judge for yourself whether it's right to obey men or God. Who do we strive to please? Men or God? Well, I want to do both. Give it a shot. But, but in a lot of actions, you don't get to please both. In a lot of converse communication, you don't get to please both. If you say the truth, even if you speak the truth in love, they may want to stone you. I mean, Paul is the one who writes and urges them to speak the truth in love. And yet we know of his own experience. Because he would speak the truth in love and then he would be stoned. He would be beaten. He would be mistreated. He would be spoken against and so on. In 1 Thessalonians 2, it says this. Just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, we speak not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. Seems like a simple thing, but it's a prideful thing. Pride makes us want to please men because there seems to be an immediate return on that. They like me, they're impressed by me, they speak well of me, maybe they'll give me a little something. Whatever it may be that motivates us, uh, yeah, I mean, if I do something to please God, I may, not, I may not get the good of that until he comes again. I mean, it's almost as if my inheritance is reserved in heaven. You know, can't we, like a piñata, just open it up a bit and let some of it fall right now. I mean, people feel that way, don't they? But, hey, let us store our treasures in heaven. Let us wait for our inheritance. Re the reality is this, because of the abundant mercies of God in the midst of the trials and tribulations of this world, he still gives us much to be thankful for, much to rejoice in. You know, no, no small thing, even the things that he gives us better than those things that the world does. In Luke 6, verse 26, Jesus used these very words that come very starkly as a warning. It says this, woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did of the false prophets. Right. Now, listen to me. I'm not saying make it your goal for everyone to speak bad about you. Make it your goal for everyone to think you a problem. No, no, no. That, 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 your goal is to please God. And as and when the gospel on occasion is an offense and the gospel is a stumbling block, you let that stand. But your goal is to please God. Now, I want to present this with a degree of balance. Because I've known some dear believers who say, I don't care what anybody thinks, I'm doing me. Well, all right, that, that wasn't what we were saying. We were saying, please God, strive to please God. Seek to honor him, not I'm doing me. <laughs> I'm going to be authentic to myself. No, be, be true to him. Please don't misunderstand this. People love to get caught up and misunderstand this. Well, I, but I'm, not, I'm not, not even going to take thought of men. Take thought of men to some extent. 
Galatians and 1 Corinthians 10 verse 32, it does say this. Give no offense to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. To some extent, he says this, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of the many that they might be saved. Okay, well, so hold on a second. Paul is clearly schizophrenic. He said, I don't please men. And then he said, I please men. What is going on there? He's indicated this, his highest commitment and that which he lives for every day. He makes it his aim to please God. And often in the faithful service to God, that will be at odds with the ways of men, at odds with the words of men, and they will take offense to that. And our goal in preaching isn't that others would say, you are great. Our goal in communicating isn't they would say, you have a way with words, you're wonderful. It's, that's not our goal. The goal is they would say, oh, the God you speak of seems so glorious. The Christ you speak of seems so profoundly beautiful and powerful. What, a, what an amazing God. Where uh, the, the hope would be that they forget. But he says, I make it my aim to please. I'm not trying to get in my own way. I'm not. Tr my goal isn't to offend people from the get-go. The scriptures do remind us that along the way, we have to indicate people... Um, need to recognize their sin and be brought by the Spirit of God to repent, turn from those th things, trusting in Christ and His righteousness and His worth and His merit alone. But I've heard of individuals whose motives may be good but methods bad who, might who would corner people in an elevator or somewhere where they can't escape and say... Uh, you know, you're worth nothing. You know, to which sadly, a lot of us will say, yeah, that's what my parents always told me. <laughs> You'll never amount to nothing. Yeah, I've heard that. The, the whole goal is, isn't that you beat them down. Why don't you step in there and say, let me tell you something. I'm worth nothing. Why don't you start there? <laughs> I mean, is your goal to put them down? Is your goal to kick and offend them? Or you could also communicate that, you know, all of us have within ourselves no inherent worth. God would be within his divine rights to end it, to call his spirit back, to wrap it all up and start over. There was a time even in which God spoke to Moses. And said, children of Israel, they are down there in absolute disobedience. I'm going to wipe them out and start over with you. Was that within God's rights? It was. Now, he did not do so in expression of his mercy. On, uh, and we had the intercession of Moses there, which to a degree can help picture for us the intercession of Christ. <laughs> How we who were unworthy, a worthy one, spoke on our behalf.
And so when we take this up, I don't want us to miss this. Now, Jesus says to some of the people in his day, these simple words, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and does not seek the glory that comes from God? What, is your, what are your motives? What pushes you? For Herod, what pushed him in a lot of his actions and a lot of his decisions was his own pride, his mean-spiritedness, and also that he might get the praise of some. So Tyre and Sidon, which was in the region of Judea, which he oversaw, was not a predominantly Jewish area of that. And he loved to... Uh, embolden and build up his favor among the Jews. So when he would put them off, when he would put them down, others would be like, yeah, you're right. You're doing good. And further him in those things. And he loved the glory that came from people. Jesus says even further in John chapter 12, verse 42, nevertheless, it says this, and this is fearful. Listen, many of the authorities believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogues. What was more important to them? Christ or them being put out of the synagogues? And it's, it goes on to say this, for they loved the glory that came from man more than the glory that comes from God. And that's, that's what warns us about forms of false belief. Because Jesus does give this powerful warning in Mark 8. It says, and the crowd called, uh, calling the crowd to him with his disciples in Mark 8, 34. He said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his own life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel's We'll find it. What is it putting there? Look, my goal isn't even to please others. My ultimate goal is not also to please myself. It is to please him, even if I lose out. I mean, to please him, even if others think you're ridiculous. You're foolish. Why would you give that up? Why wouldn't you? Do you have no idea what he has waiting for me? No eye hath seen or heart of a man has, uh, man has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. And the things that he's revealed in his word already make us say, oh wow, what glorious abundance he has for us. But that ain't even a, but a little of what it really is. And then further. Goes on still in John 12 to say this. Listen. For what does it profit a man. If he gains the whole world. And forfeits his soul. For what can a man give in return for his soul. Then he goes on. Jesus says this. For whoever is ashamed of me. And of my words. In this adulterous and sinful generation. Of him. The son of man. Will be ashamed. When he comes in the glory of his father. With the holy angels. That's a serious thing isn't it. Jesus says why do you call me Lord Lord. And do not do what I 
tell you. Now, the third thing. So we see mean-spirited, holding on to anger. The second thing we saw that there is loves the praise of man. And the third one to which we will spend uh, uh, less time than I would have liked to on it. He did not give glory to God. Now, again, when I read this, something hits me unexpectedly. Because when I read this section, it says this very clearly. He, you know, and again, he makes a big show of himself. On the appointed day, he puts on his royal robes. So, I mean, he puts on his, his things that make him look special, fancy, important. He sits on a throne, and our best understanding are these thrones were on platforms. Here is the seat above everyone else. Here is this clothes. He's made himself more important than everyone else. And then it says he delivers an oration. He's worked out his speech. He delivers his words. It's almost as if while he's saying it, he, his mind is swirling like, I love me. You know, it's he, he, just unpacking this, you know, and today, like a mic drop. And then he stands back when he's done. And what do they say? The voice of a God and not of a man. Now, when I read that, I'm thinking, all right, those people need to be killed. <laughs> They're the ones who are calling a man God, right? You know, logically, they're the ones who seem to our human view. What did, he, what did Herod not do? Herod didn't give the glory to God. And we think, well, most people don't. All the time. But isn't it worse that they said the voice of a God and not a man? To which I remind you, God's ways are not our ways. <laughs> And God had momentary mercy on them, as he does all around us, to those of us all who deserve to be squished. And to Herod, not here. Because the message needed to come through. He did not give the glory to God. Now, I want to say this. Some people try to do this, and I'm not speaking of any one in particular, though your mind may go to one. But there's a couple guys who do this. Maybe they score a touchdown. Maybe they make a nice shot. And what do they do? Yeah, I like that. But over time, it becomes a habit. And, and during the interviews, what's happening? You know, and some of these guys are nice enough that, they, that, that, that they'll, they'll give a little, little squibby to God there, you know. First of all, I want to thank God. Now, let me tell you about my coach and all my hard work and all my preparation and everything that I did and how I stayed focused in the moment. And, uh, yeah, all praise to me. But I did mention God, don't forget. That's not, but we know that, right? He stood back and said, and we, get it, we need to understand this to, to some degree. He did not give glory to God. And the scripture says, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. I was going to say, picture that. 
But I think when you simply say it, it's hard not to picture that. Now, the, the scary part of this, if the extra biblical history is correct, he began in that moment to be eaten by worms. And the history records that seemingly he was eaten from the inside by worms. And they had such sufficient eating effect that, it, that at the end of the week, he died. So this is, a, this is a simple summary. He was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But in that, in that moment, something went seriously off. And he was then debilitated and down. And worms ate him from the inside out. And some of us say, that is horrible. Horrible. Now listen to me. Are you uncomfortable with this? Who caused the worms to eat him till he died? God. God is good. Amen? God did this. Does this seem good to you? See, some of you say, oh yeah. But note this. Here's the reality. Seem good to you don't matter. Seem good to me don't matter. God is good. There's a lot of things we see and experience in the world which we struggle to reconcile. If God is good, why does he allow this to happen? And there are some significant evils in the world. And sometimes those aren't even the things that trouble us most. The people that we have deemed relatively good, something seriously bad happens to them. And then we think, wait a second. Okay, good God, bad things, good person. Good God, good things, bad person. I don't get it. Amen. You don't get it. His judgments are unsearchable. His ways are inscrutable. And you know what? Sometimes it's so that we would not rely on ourselves, but on him who saves us. Sometimes that it's we will not boast in ourselves, but glory in him. Oh, just a few verses. When, when, Paul is, oh, when, when Daniel is speaking way back to Nebuchadnezzar and explaining some things to him, how he could even know and understand dreams and other things like that. He explains it like this. He doesn't say, uh, I'm just better than everyone else and I've got better wisdom and I can tell you what you need. He's basically, there's nothing special about me. Daniel 2 verse 21. He, speaking of God, changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who are understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. And he knows what is in the darkness. And the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. For you have given me wisdom and might. And have now made me to know the things that were asked of you. For you made them known to us what is the king's matter. Simple, simple picture like this. Um. If, if I was to take something and hand it to you, 
and then hand, uh, hand that same thing to someone else. And then not hand it to a few others. And then I was to stand back and say, let, let's say it was a cake. Who's holding a cake? I'm holding a cake. You are better than the others because you are holding a cake. Yeah, thank you. I am better than the others because I'm... Well, why are you holding a cake and they're not? I gave it to you. You know, there was nothing impressive about you. You didn't make the cake, didn't bake the cake, you, you, you didn't ice it, you did nothing. It was given to you. Why, why are you so... Why would you for a moment be pumped? What do you have? What are you? He says that, and again, just noting this, uh, later on, as, as we know, Nebuchadnezzar then carries on. He stands one day on the top of his house, and he looks out on his kingdom, the most powerful in all the earth. And he basically, I'll paraphrase, and then I'll read re really, he says, my kingdom is great because I am so great. More literally, he says this. Is this not great Babylon by which, which I have built by my might, my power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? Yeah. And uh, that, that's pretty strong, isn't it? But I ask you this question, and I know you know the answer. Where did he get the might? Where did he get the power? Any majesty or glory that, that men ascribe to him, who granted him to receive it? God. And so Daniel comes in, explains to him, just so you know. Because you think you're so great. You're going to become like an ox. For seven years. You're going to go out and you're going to eat grass in the field. You know. Now... Nebuchadnezzar, when, da when Daniel says this to him, is like, yeah, I think I'd like to do that. <laughs> no, he, he's not wanting to. He's not willing to. But Daniel's telling him, this is what's going to happen, whether you like it or not. Well, God can't make me. I have free will. He's going to shut your will down, my friend. And you're going to do what he compels you to do because he's God. Don't miss that. And he says this, you're going to be like this for seven periods will pass over you into verse 32 until you know that the most high rules the kingdoms of men and gives it to whomever he will. And verse um, 35, when he comes to himself after seven years, all the inhabitants of the earth, he says, are accounted as nothing. I thought I was something. Now I realize, mm -mm. Anything I had, he gave me. He does as he wants with the hosts of heaven, the inhabitants of the earth. None can stay his, none, his hand and none can say to him, what have you done? You can't question him. You can't stop him. You can't overrule him. And then it's, he says at this time, verse 36, my majesty and splendor returned to me. That's stated kind of in the passive. Like now I realize they don't come from me. They were given to me, they were taken away, and now they're returned to me. I'm a steward of these things, not the source. 
the source of all our talent, the source of all our good, the source of anything is the grace of God for, that is good in the eyes of men. And then it says, my counselors, my Lord strengthened me and I was established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me. So now when he re recognizes the greatness of his experience and position, it was added to him. He realizes it comes from somewhere else. And Daniel warns his son of the very same thing. He says in chapter 5, verse 20 of your father, when his heart was lifted up, his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly. He was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken away from him, driven out like a beast. Down in end of verse 21, until he knew the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind. And sets over it whom he wills. And you his son have not humbled your heart. Though you knew all of this. You have lifted yourself up. Oh when Peter showed up to Cornelius house. And, and Cornelius started to worship him. He said. I too am just a man. Get up. In Acts chapter 14 we're going to see. They were impressed with a. Paul and Apollos, they wanted to sacrifice to them and say the gods have come down to us. And they tore their clothes in humility and, and, and said, no, we are also men of like nature with you. Turn from these vain things to the true and living God. The simple and clear verse that you've all been waiting for me to read, hopefully, in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 7 says, for who sees anything different in you what do you have that you have not received and if you received it then why do you boast as though you did not receive it here is this the circumstance and we know this from the scriptures in him we live and move and have our being the scriptures remind us in james that uh, there were those who thought they would go do business, make a profit, and come back in a year's time. And they were told, listen, all such boasting is evil. If the Lord wills, you will live. You're, you're planning all these other plans. You don't even have power over whether you breathe tomorrow, let alone a year from now. You don't have power over the wisdom of your decision making. You don't have power over the, the sway of the markets. You don't have power over famines and floods. You got nothing. In yourself. You got nothing. Apart from him. Jesus says even with regard to us in, in John 15. Apart from me you can do nothing. Not, not a little bit. Not relatively impressive, but just not quite enough. No, apart from him, you can do nothing. In him was life. Now, I'll just say this as a simple statement. If you didn't have life, how much would you be doing right now? Okay. You guys are smart. And so it says there in James, all such boasting is evil. So much more to say about this just to emphasize this point, but I think you get it. And in conclusion, I simply want to draw your attention to what it says in, uh, as we go to verse 23 and 24. Herod, in all of his arrogance, died. He was against the Christians. He was against the Christian leaders. He was for himself. And what came to an end? Himself. 
What did not come to an end? Verse 24. The word of God continued to go. To advance, to grow, and multiply. The New American Standard there says to advance and gain adherence. Men tried to put an end to it, and they get put an end to. <laughs> yeah. Jesus will build his church, and the kingdom of Hades will not prevail against it. There is nothing that can end. Nothing that can overcome the purposes of God. I tell you, to who belongs glory? To who belongs honor? To who belongs praise? Let us give praise to whom praise is due. And that is our God. And I would say beyond praise, what is due to him? Everything. And so as I close in prayer, we're going to sing this. We're going uh, to close the sermon in prayer. We're going to sing this song together. Take my life and let it be. Take my silver and my gold. Take my mouth. Take my everything. And again, we offer it to him because we only have it because he's granted it to us. And we owe to him everything that we are and all that we have. Let's pray. God, we are just so amazed by your word. And when we contemplate it, we are by nature so much like Herod. And yet we thank you for your grace that has shown us a, a, a more glorious way in Christ. Lord, we thank you for the way that we come to recognize that we are to give you glory in all things. I would ask God that we would be a people who would seek your approval, your commendation. We would want to please you more than ourselves and anyone in this world. We would make it our aim to please you. As we deal with others around us, God, that we would deal so with them with the thought of your mercy patience and grace towards us. Lord, help us not to be mean-spirited. Help us not to seek the praise of men. And may it be that we always, always give you the glory. In Jesus' name we pray.